What's up, y'all? It's your boy DJ Ben Amin of the For All Nerds Show. And before we get into this episode, I just got to let y'all know out there, we had a couple of technical difficulties when we were recording with our very special guest. So there might be a few small audio hiccups during the interview. Thank you. You are now listening to For All Nerds Show, a podcast about geek and pop culture from the perspective of people of color. For All Nerds is hosted by DJ Ben Amin and Tatiana Keen Jones. Our show is edited and produced by Brother Chris. For All Nerds Show is a member of the Loudspeakers Network, where we always say rest in peace to our founder, Combat Jack. For All Nerds Show is powered by our listeners. Everything we do from our podcasts, live events, our website are all independently funded. Please continue to support us through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash for all nerds. Welcome to the Fan Bros, the show where the bros are fans. And what's up, y'all? And welcome to another episode of the For All Nerd Show. All right. The voice of the urban geek, the podcast where we speak about geek culture according to people of color. And as always, it's your boy, DJ Ben Amin. Can't debut my new AKA. Not yet. Not yet. So let's just say I'm Hollywood Hameen, Wakanda's favorite DJ, the ghost in the shell toe, Black Black Goliath. <laughs> I'm trying to remember them off the top of my head right now, folks. So that's all I got right now. now. You know, uh, yeah, I don't know. Poor little rich kid. Oh, man. <laughs> really? You know that's Richie Rich's AKA? What? Yeah, poor the poorest little rich boy or something like I that. I've never heard of that. It's so it's so wildly disrespectful to poor people. But yeah, you know, Richie Rich is wildly disrespectful to poor people, so there you go. Richie Rich wildly disrespectful to, to everyone. That. Yeah, pretty much. So um yeah, Period. As, as you hear, my co host is in the chair. And I will not freestyle my AKAs because I am Tatiana King Jones, the Grand Duchess of Tech, also known as Rita Aurora Chimaru, Lambo Calrissian, T'Challa Bread, Sean Jean Luc Picard, J Prince of All Saiyans, and Father Stretch My Bands. That's such a classic. And we better pray we never have anyone related to J Prince on the show. Well, it's the first of all, it's not it's disrespectful. Respect. It's yeah, res- true. The Prince of All Saiyans of Vegeta. Yeah. Yep. And Vegeta is that dude. So Facts. I'm saying Jay Prince is that dude. Which I mean, he come is. on. So it's fine. He's but, he's fine. And if he gets mad, I don't care. Oh, I do. I care. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't get mad off of, you don't get mad off of Vegeta and DBZ. No, you, you better don't. not. No. You but don't. you know, if you do, no look, I don't want no problems. Um <laughs> look, that's Jay Prince. I don't I, want no smoke. None of that. I am from Houston, you know, I gotta go home sometime. <laughs> you gotta go home. That's a oh man, that was a classic when when um should Knight tried to come at this is a true story. Should Knight tried to come at who was he trying to get at? Uh 
Yeah, I, I can't remember the, the whole story. So we just gonna keep it moving right here because this is for all nerds and we ain't talking about no should night up in this joint. Because Dancing all in the video. I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that, just how's, how's this phrase just come up so much today? I don't know. Dancing all in the video comes up a lot though. But yeah, it's for all nerds, folks. It is a great week in geek. I myself have been having an amazing week. This show is pretty much tapping it off because I just got back from Medellin, Colombia, visiting South America for the first time, checking another continent and another country off my list. And it was a great time. Passport. You know, that's all I can say about that, though. You know. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, hit me on the DMs. But yeah, oh, you know, okay. you know, certain things just can't be put on every podcast, folks. You know what I mean? Like, wow. I, I will say this. It was really interesting getting to see. You can look at my Instagram. I mean, there was a lot of dope art. I went to this area, Communa 13, which is filled with graffiti art of all kinds. I'm going to be posting a lot of that. But it was just ill to see, like, the areas where you know, like, narcos went down here. You know I mean? In real life and on the show. Mm. You know, like I'm eating at cafes. It looks like somebody on a scooter could just roll up and start spraying the joint up. Ooh. You know, yeah. I mean, not that that was happening. No, look, it is it, calmed it's down. A scary thought. Yeah, but it's calmed down considerably. I mean, it's like being in any major American city. Like if you're in D.C., you know, there are pl- places that got shot up. I always wonder how when tourists come to the United States, considering our gun situation, <sighs> do they feel like right? this is a really dangerous space? You to know. Be? Like I do know it was it was either earlier this year or last year where I don't remember which country but they actually issued a warning. Like and I I I found I'm glad they did but they actually issued a warning to their travelers saying if you go to the US that you know mm-hmm. it was like a red you know red alert high likelihood that violence may be upon you type of stuff. So I I always think about that like what how do they feel when they come here? That's wild, you know, because I definitely looked it up before I went to Medellin and they were like it's like being in New Orleans. And I'm like <laughs> Oh, they said that. Yeah, I'm like shit, that's dangerous, you know. <laughs> like keeping it real, like being in New Orleans ain't, you know, you got to watch yourself. I mean, a lot of it is just about understanding your surroundings and yep. knowing where to go mm-hmm. and, and not being stupid. Same. And that's all I did while I was there. And I had a great time. Fantastic time. Shout out to the whole city and the whole country. Thank you for taking care of me. But now I'm back here in the spaceship. I said it on Twitter that we had a very special guest, but because I don't like to, you know, put it out there before it happens. I couldn't say who exactly it was, but it's happened. They in the spaceship tonight. It's yes. a lot of things going down. It's momentous. And to top it off, folks, to top it off, the last ever, ever, for the Skywalker saga, that is, the last ever Star Wars trailer dropped. The Rise of Skywalker. The Rise of Skywalker. And guess what, folks? Your boy has not seen it because it dropped last night during Monday Night Football. He was too busy being Carmen San Diego. You know how it is. We're in the world looking like Waldo out here. But now I'm back. And so as a special treat to y'all, we are going to record my traditional reaction videos right here live on the show. So let me put these. Wait, do I need, yeah, I need these headphones. Let me put these headphones on so I can hear this trailer. All right. And here we go. All right. There we go. Oh, my God. There's that title screen. Got some forest action. It's an instinct. Go! Feeling. The force brought you together. Lando. Good people Rose. Fight if we lead them. 
keep telling me they know me. No one does. Yeah, that shit was lit. <laughs> um, wow. Wow, folks. Yeah, there, there was a lot going on in that trailer. Oh, my God. You know, for everyone who wants to see that video, it'll be on our Instagram, at For All Nerds, all those drip places. All right, well, let's talk about it, though. Um, oh, my God. There, there, there's, there's a lot. Like, the first jump cut of Ray jumping through the forest yeah. and then landing in what appears to be the wreckage of the Death Star. Yes. That was an amazing edit right there. Yes. Um, you had what appears to be Palpatine on his uh, robot. Palpatine, Palpatine. Palpatine, Palpatine, <laughs> tomato, <laughs> tomato, uh, descending Palpatine. upon Ray towards the end. You have Ray and whatever that fuck boy's name is. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, Kylo Ren. Oh, my God. Uh, coming together. You mean, you mean Kanye Ren. Yeah, to smash up what looks to be Darth Vader's uh, costume, mask, everything, yeah. br- blowing him to pieces. You got Finn yelling. Mm-hmm. You got Rose. Yeah, I, I think uh, you have all the makings of the typical epic, the epic saga. They <coughs> they put definitely put plenty of drama and energy into the trailer. I did see some people who were like, oh, they were just like, hmm, okay. Well, that's on them. Which I think is that you're just being jaded. Yeah. You, you're a little bit jaded. Um, that said, I'm one of the people who actually did enjoy the previous ones. Mm-hmm. And while I did have my issues or certain things, that still hasn't scrubbed away any of the excitement that I'm feeling now for this trailer. Literally, as soon as the trailer ended, I won a Fandango and bought me some tickets. Fandango also went down for a little bit. Yep. It was acting wild crazy, but I got it popping. And also, it's interesting, it's interesting to me that people always have... Uh, particularly the naysayers have always have something terrible and negative to say about it and oh you know this is woman led and you can't do this you can't do that yet they said that this has outsold in the first hour has outsold Endgame now, <laughs> whether or not that's PR bullshit or not nah. doesn't even matter because I, I Fandango was down yeah. so uh, something's true so this the, the sheer fact that there are people who are excited about it and there's clear love for the characters I'm one of those people who love the characters I'm glad that we're finally going to see Rose again I'm glad that we're going to 
see all these people all you over You saw Jana leaning on the horse? Yo, that's what I'm really yes. waiting for. And I don't know what I don't know what kind of animal that's called. It's it's a horse-like creature. They named yeah. it before, but They've I can't remember it. They named it before, yeah. right? Because I wanted to say the name of it, but that's fine. But I'm... And I hope that it's not the last time we see her. Mm. Like, this is technically her introduction, and yep. I hope this is not both her introduction and her ending. Grand opening, grand closing. Like, no, I don't need... <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't need the grand opening, grand closing, not at all. But that being said, I was excited about it. Um, for everything you said, Ben, I mean, my favorite shot was them. Um, I don't know if they're on top of a cruiser or what, but it's just like all the lasers going all around them. They're like walking towards each other with their in the water lightsaber. Yeah, in the water. That's like you know with the with the storm coming down and, <coughs> and it's like the, the reckoning mm-hmm. that type of fight and and yes that's happened a lot in Star Wars but it's good to see it in this context and I'm waiting I'm, yeah. I'm ready I'm waiting and I'm ready I'm not one of those people who ever gets jaded about Star Wars as you know like you can see in the video I was definitely fighting back the some man was thug tears I saw the tears yeah yeah I'm not gonna lie the I tried tears, to zoom into that yeah the tears <laughs> the tears were definitely coming down a little bit you know I saw Ray you know and that just gets me in my heart I saw my boy Finn. You know, I saw my boy Poe Dameron. That fuck boy Kylo was there. I mean, Leia. I hope they get Finn more to do, though. I, I mean, yes. prayers up for that. Uh, Bless up. What And whatever happened to uh, Captain Phasma? Yeah, I mean, Captain Phasma didn't die, so... I think that's... Where the, is she? If she shows... You know, I, I see... I, I hope she shows up and gets killed again in this one. Like, what do you mean again? Because in the first one, she gets thrown in the trash or bathroom. But she ain't died, I... Yeah, but, you know, you're, you, you know, whatever. The <laughs> second one, she gets thrown down the fiery pit. You know, I wanted to be like the um, crossbones uh, from the MCU, the dude who kept showing up and getting blown up by Captain America. Oh, no. I want that for Captain Phasma. But no, I was dumb hype, yo. Everything about it was mind-blowing to me. I, like I said, I'm not one of those people who gets jaded. Um, C-3PO saying, I'm sitting here looking at my friends for the last time, like, Fam, you know, like I almost lost it. You know, I think that was a cheap jab at y'all. Like, I mean, you damn sure all these are cheap. You, you know what? You know want to know what the cheapest jab is? The end of it is Luke saying the force is with you, and then that's Leia saying always. always. Yep. You want to talk about cheap jabs? That's in my heart right there. <laughs> that's right in the heart. Like that's pain, folks. Y'all don't feel me out there. I almost wore my Leia Rebel shirt today because I knew I was to be watching this joint. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, I haven't got my tickets, but, you know, shout out to my Disney Connects because, you know, I know we will be at a screening, and this is it. You know, I, I you know, it all comes down to this, and I'm hype, y'all. And, like, and like I love that you brought that up mm-hmm. about how the haters hate every time. So much hate for Last Jedi. Oh, my God. Shout out to all you no-tips out there. All mad as all hell about Finn, about this, about that. You know, and all the white supremacists mad about Finn, about this, about that. You know, you see how they all agree sometimes? You see how white men and black men always come together to hate, you know, for on things that are, should be irrelevant to them? You know, uh, I'm just I'm just pointing out something there, folks. I'm just pointing out that sometimes your views can co-align with someone who you would think that is on the opposite side of you. So when that happens, perhaps it's time to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Oh, boy. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with one of the biggest guests to ever grace the spaceship, you know, oh, Lord. Yeah, this is something special right here. 
Hey guys, it's Allison Williams. I'm an actor, and when I am not scaring people on screen, I am hanging out with For All Nerds and listening to their show. Hey guys, this is Rod and Karen of the Blackout Tales podcast. And when we aren't doing one of our mini podcasts, yes, we are listening to For All Nerds. Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Asante, one third of the Friend Zone. And when I am not smoking pot or playing Shinobi Striker, I am listening to For All Nerds. Tune in. What's up, everybody? This is Chuck Creekmer, aka Jigsaw from AllHipHop.com. And when I'm not placing my heavy hand on the world of hip hop culture, I'm watching for all nerds. Hey, this is Logan Browning, and when I'm not trying to take over Netflix, I'm listening to for all nerds. Yo, what up? This is Yahya Abdul Mateen. The second I play Black Manta in the Aquaman movies. And when I'm not getting around the city, I'm chilling, listening to For All Nerds. What's up, y'all? This is Ann Steven Harris, fire artist, co-creator of Aztec, fire artist on Ajala, The Fringe, Michael Cray, Watson the Homes, don't forget Watson the Homes, award winner of Watson the Homes, Glyph Award, eyes are nominated. When I'm not drawing, I am listening to For All Nerds. Check it. Hey, I'm Malcolm Lee, director of Night School, and when I'm not directing, writing, and producing, and editing and spending time with my kids, I'm listening to For All Nerds. Hey, this is Pamela Ribbon, and when I'm not writing things like My Boyfriend is a Bear or Ralph Breaks the Internet, I am listening to For All Nerds. Yo, what's up? This is Chico Leo, and when I'm not leading an Athenian revolt in Assassin's Creed Odyssey, I'm listening to For All Nerds. Uh, what's up, y'all? Welcome back to this episode of the For All Nerds show. And as always, we are bringing you that heat, that fire. And this one is something special. This, I mean, especially personally for me, <laughs> right here, this is a big moment in the For All Nerds history. Because today we are welcoming Damon Lindelof, the living legend himself, you know, <laughs> screenwriter, comic book writer, producer, co creator, and showrunner of Lost. I mean, you know, <laughs> you could end it right there for me. You, you could end it right there. But, you know, he's done a lot of other things, worked on Cowboys and Aliens, Prometheus, another classic, The Leftovers. And this week, his latest and greatest Watchmen debuted on HBO. So let's all welcome him to the spaceship right now. Woo! What's up? It is good. It is good to be aboard the spaceship. Thanks, guys. I uh, really appreciate you having me here. Excellent. No, no problem. Thank you very much for being here. And to start it off, like we said, this is a momentous occasion for us because, you know, not only did Watchmen debut this week, and it was crazy, the reaction was crazy, everything around it has been crazy, but we're also huge fans of your work in general. You've worked in Hollywood for a good minute and have created some, you know, really, or helped to create some really iconic properties. But what first inspired you to become a storyteller? Oh man, that's a great question. Uh, I, 
from from as long as I can remember, I just I loved um, uh, getting read to. Um, my my mom and my dad were both avid book readers. My mom was a public school teacher, a reading teacher, so that they would they would both read to me. And uh, when the whenever the story was finished, apparently I do not remember this. I was you know three or four years old. I would say, and then what happened? <laughs> and uh, and they'd say, well, the the book is over. I'd be like, yeah, but then then what happened? And then they would say to me, well, what do you think happened? So I had to. Uh, kind of start pitching my parents on, uh, on, on, on story. Um, and, uh, I can't, I don't think that the, that my pitches were particularly good, but I think like the idea of like having a sense that, that stories were written by someone else, but then could be taken over by, by the people reading them, that we could imagine the characters in new and engaging situations. Um, that just felt to me like a very natural way to do this. Um, and, um, so the fact that I get, you know, to do it professionally now, mm-hmm. um, as, as an adult, um, is, is really been an incredible blessing. Uh, it would have been, it would have been quite a cosmic joke if I, if I weren't able to, to make a living at this, but I, I'd probably be telling stories no matter what vocation I found myself in. Mm. So that's something else. You didn't always want to be a screenwriter. Did that was that something that came later? Yeah, I you know I as I sort of went through um, you know high school and into college, I started you know I was watching a tremendous amount of, of television and movies. Uh, I did not. Uh, I was not um, was not a popular child guys um <laughs> I know that may, may shock you um and uh not just because of what uh, uh of the nomenclature of your podcast but i there there are certainly many individuals who i went to high school with who would have identified me as a nerd and at the time um in in the mid 80s that was not like a badge of honor no. uh, like it is now and so uh but i did fantasize about um you know certainly for me it kind of all started with star wars and I became obsessed with George Lucas, um, and and after him Steven Spielberg. And so by the time I was you know 13 or 14, I was kind of anybody who was asking me what I wanted to be when I grew up. That those were the, the those are the the guys that I was aspiring to. So I think it was probably more focused on movies in terms of my aspirations um, up through college. And then once I landed out in Los Angeles, um, it took me about as, as you uh, as as you say, Ben, I mean, you know, uh, uh, a minute, which was in, in real time about seven about seven years of sort of, um, you know, getting people's coffee and um, and getting their cars washed and um, and answering people's phones, and then finally found my way into uh, a, a, a writer's assistant position on a TV show, just kind of an apprenticeship out here, and that's when I first got my break. But, uh, you know, I, at that point I was 28 years old and, um, and, uh, it was uh, maybe 27. I put my nose to the grindstone and mm. that was the first time that I got paid to be a writer. Mm. So from like we were talking about before, you've also been involved, you know, you've done all these things. And before we get to Watchmen, I just have to say, because, you know, like I said, lost, <laughs> like, it's just, yeah. I right. mean, and no, I'm not going to, you know, 
I'm not one of those people who had a problem with any of the ending. I'm always about character growth and development. And I always tell people that's because that's why I love Law so much because it, it's all good. It's all good. Everybody, everybody <laughs> has their own journey. I'm here to I'm here to answer all your questions. You want to know where the polar bear came from? It's all good. No, I figured out that out because it was in some of the extra stuff. I think. Oh, good. Yeah. So I figured that. And yeah, yeah. like I say, I'm right. I'm the one who was on the internet every week reading everything I could. So, but would you that's say right. that the constant is the greatest episode of television ever? <laughs> Oh, I, 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 there are so many great episodes of television out there. I, I definitely feel like it's, it's the episode of Lo- one of the episodes of Lost that I, uh, I am most proud of. Mm. Um, that episode, you know, we had to write an episode of Lost every eight days. So we would come in on Monday and we'd be looking at a, a blank white board. And then the following Wednesday, there was this 55 page script. What? And, um, wow. and you, and you had to do, you know, we, the, we were, we were doing, you know, 24, 25 episodes a year for the first three years. And the constant happened in, in the same season as the writer's strike. Um, and so we, we were able, um, through a series of unique circumstances to take about six weeks, uh, to, to do that episode because of all the moving around mm. and jumping around in time. And we didn't, you know, it was just a perfect example of we don't know how to do this yet. And the only way to learn how to do it is to just make mistake after mistake, after mistake, after mistake. And so while I, I'm, I really like the finished product. I think that the, I remember the process of making that episode and how all the writers, we just like, you know, we just had this kind of fire in our eyes of like, we have an opportunity to really try to do something special here. And and every once in a while that works out. Most of the time you just miss and like you came close to it. It's just like that feeling of like your outstretched fingers, like sort of reaching for this and they just graze it, but you can never get it in your hand. And like that, that the experience, the collaborative effort that went into that episode, Jack Bender who directed it. And, um, and of course Ian Cusick and Sonia Walger who, you know, Desmond and Penny were not the main characters on lost but they just like they suddenly just stepped out like okay we'll be romeo and juliet and um like it, it just everything came together so i'm uh i'm i'm, I'm really proud of that one mm. i have to say i disagree that they were not the main characters of lost, though, because desmond and penny were definitely <laughs> right, yes. the main right. characters of yes. lost <laughs> yes i i i can't entirely disagree with you there yeah. one of the things that we always said in one of the things that we always said in the writer's room on Lost is every character on Lost thinks they're the main character on Lost, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and uh, it was, uh, you know, it was a really interesting way to approach the show because, you know, you're, you know, we're just, I'm just a supporting character in, in, in your guy's movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you, that's the way that you have to, to kind of look at life sometimes. Mm, but that's so real like even from the first episode when he's talking about how he's in the band and he expects everyone to know who he is and everyone just ignores him <laughs> right. yeah but it's like he's yeah, thinking that uh, drive yeah. shaft yes drag shaft <laughs> yes. hilarious so so you know Poor now Charlie. you know we're fast forwarding uh-huh. a few years you're developing from loss and other properties and now you have Watchmen, and you know that those two different writers' rooms. So I'm just curious, how did you develop that group and how, you know, what was the process that went into that for Watchmen? Yeah, uh, for, for Watchmen? Yes. So um, when, when 
I wrote this letter, so I'm not going to um, uh, I'll refer anybody who is curious about sort of a, a lot of the things that sort of preceded the hiring of the writers in terms of uh, how I came to, to do this project and mm. what my relationship is with the original Watchmen. Suffice to say, like, I love and adore and worship Watchmen. I wow. have for, for over 30 years now. They offered it to me a couple of times and I was unwilling to take it on. Uh, just because I was incredibly intimidated by the material, but I also wasn't. Sh- we should always ask ourselves as storytellers: Should we do this? Right. And if the answer is yes, then you should then you should have an answer for why, or more importantly, like why now. And so I didn't. I didn't have. I wasn't sure if we should, and I certainly didn't know why. And then the third time that they asked me, I started to feel like we should, and I started to have an inkling of uh, of why now, especially just in terms of like what was happening in the world around me. Yeah. Um, I think it was around 2017 by, by that point. Um, and it, it felt like the last Watchmen came along when America was, was in a profound and, and deep in, in crisis. Maybe it always is. Um, but it felt like um, to, to do an American superhero story uh, um, that, that took on sort of politics and the state of play as it were, mm-hmm. you know, through the lens of, um, of alternate reality, sci-fi storytelling, uh, it felt like the timing uh, was right. And, uh, um, and to that end, um, you know, in the, the original Watchmen in the 80s, it was about the fear and anxiety of, of uh, nuclear annihilation between the United States and Russia. And I don't feel that anxiety now in the year 2019. I'm not saying that the world isn't safer or that the Russians aren't just as dangerous, but it doesn't feel like the nukes are going to fly. But mm-hmm. what it does feel is that the country is in the midst of this um, very, very intense and very painful uh, reckoning, yeah. uh, much more painful for people of color than for white people. White people are being dragged into the reckoning, kicking and screaming, um, uh, even even those of us who claim to be woke. But it feels like this conversation um, this reckoning that has been avoided for the last four centuries is finally upon us and the country is not dealing with it particularly well. And so I was like, that feels like the why now. Right. And, um, and I went and went and pitched that to HBO. And uh, they said the, the only reasonable thing that, that one should say in that scenario, which is like, you are an extremely white person. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I, 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 are you the one? Are you the one who should be telling that story? And I said, I'd like to be one of the ones telling that story. And if you'll let let me put together a, a writer's room that that has not extremely white people in it, maybe we can accomplish that together. And so they before we even wrote a pilot, which is the, you know traditionally the way. And I know you guys know this, but maybe the listeners don't. Yeah. Traditionally, the way this works is. They say, yes, I, I go off kind of by myself and I write a pilot. Um, and then the, and then we make the first episode of the show. And if they like it, then they, they order more. And then they let you hire a, a writing staff. I said, this time around, we got to hire the writing staff first mm. um, because I don't even want to take any of this on by myself. And so Smart we ones. hired about uh, <laughs> a, there, there were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There were 12. There were 12 of us, including me. Um, and. I just um, I met with uh, I had meetings for about a month to see who I was going to hire with a real focus on not loading the room up with white dudes. And so we ended we ended up um, and also so the, the criteria was kind of, of threefold. 
you know, the first, the first piece of criteria was like, what's your relationship with Watchmen? I didn't want to hire, ev- I didn't want everybody in the writer's room to feel like they knew Watchmen chapter and verse or they loved it the way that I did. I wanted some people who were sort of like ready to shake it up and didn't really hold it in the same level of kind of canonical, yeah. biblical regard that I did. Um, so I wanted to make sure that sort of half of us knew a lot about Watchmen and the other half um, didn't. Um, and then the second thing was um, was to create, you know, I hate the word diversity on a number. We all know what it means, but it's mm-hmm. like it's come to mean in, in show business. Like it's this stamp that you put on it to, to again, show how progressive you are. But it's not um, but it's not really indicative of 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 a non-homogenized writer's room. And so the other thing was like there needs to be a wide range of age. So there need to be young people and old people in the in the room. Um, I'm, I'm unfortunately now in the latter category. Um, but also like people who have had really interesting life experiences that are vastly different from mine. Um, one of the things that was important to me was because the show was going to be reflective of policing, that mm-hmm. we actually had a, a, a police officer in the room. Um, uh, and it's hard to find cops who are now television writers. Um, but uh, we hired this uh, woman, um, Crystal Henry, who is amazing. She was a Chicago cop. Uh, she, uh, she, she's a, a woman of color, Chicago cop for seven years. Her mom is a cop in Chicago. So you have a kind of matriarchal, um, uh, generational, uh, um, family of cops and she's now an excellent television writer. So I was like, you're hired. I don't care what you think of Watchmen. Um, and, um, and so, uh, that was an incredibly important perspective. And then we had a couple of playwrights, um, uh, uh, someone who had a background in, um, in journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, um, you know, a couple of movie writers and then a couple of TV vets. Um, but again, all, you know, uh, all coming from vastly different, uh, walks of life and life experiences. And in all those meetings that I was having with them to hire them, I sort of pitched them what, what I would say were the big ideas of the show. And we don't want to spoil anyone, but I, you guys have seen the first six. Yeah. Yes. So like some of the ideas that get revealed in the sixth episode, I, I would, I would pitch in these, um, in these meetings, uh, uh, which were job interviews and, um, and the people who are like, I love that idea. That's brilliant. You have to do that. I did not hire those people. Mm. The people who said, I'm a little, I'm a little worried about these ideas and I'm not entirely sure you're going to be able to pull them off. Those are the people that I hired. So, you know, we basically created this 12 person jury of which I was not the dictatorial leader, but more like the four person. And we just put every single idea on trial until we could reach some fundamental level of consensus and it was a very, you know, um, it was a tough process for all the reasons that you might imagine. And, and one, unlike I've never been involved in before, but over the course of, of about 10 weeks, we put together the foundation of, of the world that we were building. And then we figured out what the pilot was going to be. And then I went off and wrote it. Yeah. Um, and then when, and then when we went off, we shot the pilot and after the pilot was shot and they said we, they wanted to make more, I reconvened the majority of that room. I think a couple people had gone off back, back, back to their lives. Um, 
uh, and then we brought in a couple of new bodies to, um, to, to, to fill things out. And because we were basically writing the show over the course of an entire year, people came and went from the show. We had a writer called Jefferson, um, who was on the good place. Uh, when, when we first started, he came into the Watchmen writer's room. He had to leave and go back onto the good place. And then he came back onto the Watchmen writer's room. So we did like two seasons of the good place, uh, in, in the time that it took us to make nine episodes of Watchmen. But, um, like I'm, I'm so grateful that he was able to do that. So yeah. there were always sort of like fresh, fresh eyes, fresh brains coming in and out of the room, which was critical, um, in order to kind of make things, yeah. um, like uh, no, no idea got set in stone. Everything was constantly being challenged. And that was important that you did not surround yourself with yes men. Um, you you want to have opposing opinions, opposing views, because to your point, you're kind of going to be in this echo chamber where you're going to essentially be blindsided by things that maybe you should have thought about or should have considered. So I, I think that was a smart move. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And if I'm being completely honest, Tatiana, I, I would say like, you know, I was like, I want you to really, you know, feel free to disagree with me. If I'm saying something stupid, you got to shut it down and the best idea wins. When mm-hmm. that actually started happening, I was like, well, I meant like, I didn't mean all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like all the time. Yeah. So, you know, I came in with this, like with this intention of, I need to listen more. Um, I really, I, I really need to be a part of a collaborative process as long as I can always be in charge. And I had to let go of the, as long as I can always be in charge part. And I, and I do think it was to the betterment of the show. Like, um, I didn't do it because I became a bigger person. I I did it because it was necessary. Mm. Indeed. And like, I've only had very limited experience in writer's rooms. I worked on a one season of American gods with, um, Michael and Brian, but how do you feel with like my geniuses both 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 geniuses and both also both the boss you know and so <laughs> how, how yep. do you how do you feel when um or how do you feel do you feel that it's difficult for a person of color or a minority writer to always express their opinions freely like that. Mm, because yes. you're also worried about being hired again. You're also worried about your job. You're worried about the about essentially fucking up your opportunity. As a woman, you're worried about not being called difficult to work with and other things. Yeah. Yep. A hundred percent. And I think that everything that you just said, it's all coded right in town, which is like, you know, a difficult white guy is not, called difficult he's called exacting yes or like so there 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 is that and and let me just say this which is i don't it's not my place to sit in judgment about anybody else's experience i can only speak to my own and what i'll say to you is that it's it was a long road to get to where i am now my uh it's easy for me to say oh here's now, now i have a writer's room uh, where white men are, are in the minor are, are in the minority in terms of you know there's more women than men there's five people of color um, uh, et, et cetera et cetera that's great that that's great and that's something that that's a good place to be and that's not it that's not me um, uh, reciting statistics to show how how great I am it really is to the betterment of the show that said my my record on lost was pathetic i mean we made 121 episodes of that show 
And there were probably four people of color, maybe five over the course of six seasons. Uh, You know, um, horrific. And when women incredibly underrepresented, you know, um, leftovers a little better, you know, um, like definitely, you know, we, 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 there was always a person of color in the room, uh, more oftentimes at least two, but still, um, uh, and, and better gender balance, but still w- w- far and away from where it should have been, even for a show that wasn't really specifically dealing with race. Um, uh, but it did have black characters in its second season. Um, and, um, and that isn't to say that, uh, you know, black writers can only write black stories. I'm that, how, hypo- uh, how much of a hypocrite would I be considering what, what the season of Watchmen is yeah. to have that belief? And so, and so, I can only speak to to, to the experience of to the spe- to the specifics of the question that I think you guys are asking is um, if there's only one black person in the room or two black people in the room, it's it's not going to work because like if if the if seven or eight of the other people are all saying like that's a great idea or let's do that or that idea isn't even isn't problematic on any number uh, on any number of levels, either culture or either culturally or as just a stupid story idea. You're you're much less likely to speak up than you would be if there's five black writers. Yes. You know, so that's just the way that we feel in groups. If I'm if I'm the only white person in a room uh, uh, like I'm I'm going to I'm much less likely to 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 say anything. Um, uh, but I feel, I feel more empowered. Um, and again, I'm not saying that, that that's a monolith either. Um, you know, blackness is, is no more monolith than whiteness is or being a, being a woman is, but I'm, but, but I do feel like if you, if you just, if you're engaged in a level of tokenism and I speak again, taking full responsibility for that, those, I, I managed rooms where there was tokenism. I didn't realize that at the time, but mm. that's what it was. Um, I, it, it's asking a lot of that person to, um, to, to, it, I don't know if this ever happened to you, Ben, I mean, but it's like to turn to the one black person in the room and say, you know, Hey, what do you think? Please speak on behalf of all black people. Like, um, you're not really in a position to succeed there. Mm-mm. I wasn't the only, that's something that I commend Brian and Michael on as well. Not only were there a bunch of new young writers, um, I wouldn't even include myself in the young part, especially, but um, you're youngish. Mm. But it was a very diverse room. There was a lot of women. There was a lot of people right. of color. So we had a great, you know, rapport in there and could speak pretty freely. But at the same time, even in there, and I'd like to stress this with Brian and Michael, at certain points you would still feel worried that you were saying too much because mm. you just didn't want to be stuck with a label. Yeah. Yeah. But there would be things that I would say, oh, I didn't like that, yo. Yeah. You know, it's not really, I'm not feeling that. Yeah, yeah. I, that's why I think it's important for the leaders in the room, the showrunners and everyone who is in charge of making the decisions. You know, when you have that power, present an environment where the writers and everyone else feel safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, as men, I mean, said, particularly women and people of color, give them a sense where if they do speak up, that doesn't mean they'll never work in Hollywood again yeah. and, and, and all that stuff. So that that's also part of the, the process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, yeah, I mean, I'll just say, let, let me just say that every single writer in that room, um, uh, you know, said to me at one point or another, 
I do not like that idea. Mm. Every single one of them. Um, and I would work with every single one of them again. And I would recommend every single one of them to any of my peers. Like, right. so welcome like descent. Yeah. that, 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 you know, it, I, I definitely, that's the, that's the job they were hired to do. And they all did their jobs, you know, impeccably. Mm. Yeah. And that's, it's, it, I would say the same about Brian and Michael. They have definitely, you know, helped me since, and we talk regularly. So I just know that was something, but you know, when you talk about, about this green, I also have to say <laughs> upon my first viewing of the pilot, <laughs> Uh, Damon, I was I was quite upset. He was you know? pissed. He was pissed. I was hoping you were going right. to come by the uh, panel so we could talk. Not the one I know you hosted the one. We had a one right after that. The New York Comic Con. Yeah. Yep. And then we saw you at the party, and I was about to say something then, but then I'm like, Yo, he made the constant, you know. And so, um, but personally, it really like, and uh, even the series so far, without spoiling anything that hasn't been shown in the first episode, the black trauma and pain was a lot for me, especially, um, I'm someone who grew up in Houston, Texas, and in 1998, this brother, James Bird Jr., was killed by three white supremacists. They dragged him behind his truck. And so that's something that I grew up with. And it was like, I, you know, I think right. it's like 90 miles north of Houston where Jasper is. And so it was like, that was 1998. Mm. You know, this, is, this isn't even, you know, Tulsa, Black Wall Street. This is recently where they're still dragging us behind trucks. And I was actually looking it up today, and they just executed executed one of the dudes this year. Oh, really? Yeah, a man who also at one point in prison was like, yo, I want race wars and all this other <laughs> stuff. Like, you know, and it's like, wow. hold on. So, like, my question is, like, how do you in, like, 2019, like you said, in 2019, you know, you wanted to make this, or 2017, but how do you make, like, war sharks a symbol for, or, and what could potentially be an inspiration to white supremacists? Uh, well, there, there's, there's a lot in, in what you just said. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I, I think that first off, you know, I deeply value and appreciate your honesty. And I like, despite the fact that I'm very aware of, of, of what the, of, of the choices that we made and I, and I stand by those choices, part of making those choices was understanding that, you know, that we were dramatizing I was dramatizing someone else's pain. Um, this is like, this is um, to, to show the events of, um, of not just what the massacre in, in, in 21, but in a, in a, in a present day, any, any crime, any hate crime that's carried out against a person of color. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we're, 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 we're literally recording this on a day where, um, where the president of the United States used the word lynching yes. to describe the experience that he's having with no cultural understanding of what that word means. And, um, you know, and we would get into very involved conversations in the Watchmen writers room where, for example, we can now talk about the ending of the first episode. I'm going to spoil the ending of the first episode if people haven't seen it yet. <laughs> At this um, point. But now that it is there. I mean, yeah. well, but, enough people but, have seen it. Yeah. Right. But, but, but I made the mistake of describing what happened to Don Johnson's character at the end of the pilot as a lynching. And it mm. is not. And I had to be, it had to be, I had to be educated on, on the power of that word. And, 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 uh, and I got to say, well, I didn't mean it that way. And the lesson learned here is it doesn't matter how I meant it. Thank right? you. Like <laughs> my intentions, 
But, you know, right? That's the... Yes. Um, Ignorance is not an excuse. So, is what right. we like to and, say. And so now I get to decide, right, What I get to decide whether or not I still want to put it out there. And, and the decision to, um, you know, to show, uh, like, everything... That, particularly as it relates to the historical context of, of, of Tulsa 21, the decision is like, we're not going to show anything that didn't actually happen for which there were not actual eyewitness accounts. And although we understand as, and, and as long as the, sh- as long as the season is about that pain and the pain that it inflicts on someone, not just for the duration of their entire lifetime mm-hmm. until they are old and old, old people, but also the trauma that it is that that carries forward generations, yeah. you know, to their children and their children's children. Mm-hmm. That trauma is inflicted upon them. That felt like it was a story worth telling. Um, and even even knowing that it would potentially be imperfect um, and that I understood that there would be reasonable criticism about me being the one one of the storytellers, you know, I'm, as you know, um, Ben, I mean, if you've been in a writer's room, you know, that in many ways, the showrunners are just curating other people's stories, right. you know, like, uh, we, like we get to, we get to pick what art hangs up in the walls, but, um, uh, you know, uh, I wish that I could, could take credit for all the ideas in this season of Watchmen, especially the great ones. And I can't, <laughs> um, I got, you know, uh, uh, uh um, you know, I am responsible for feeling like Tulsa um, was where we needed to set the story and that the and that the story of what happened in 1921 was going to be the jumping off point, the inciting incident, the origin story for everything that followed. I do take responsibility for that. Um, but I but I but I was so compelled to do so. Um, and I feel like uh, we did it with with as much care as can be applied uh, to a situ- situation l- like that one. Um, we did it anyway, and um, I'm not going to tell you that uh, even now after that it's after it's aired, I'm feeling like good about that decision. I'm I'm supposed to wrestle with it and be challenged about it, and. Um, I'm not, uh, out, out there, um, uh, looking at myself as, you know, as, as, uh, as, as like some sort of, you know, heroic, um, hero to the masses. I, I realize that I'm an imperfect vehicle to tell the story, but, but I, I felt compelled to tell it. And, um, and, and, and here we are, you know, it's the best yeah. that I can say. Yeah. And, and interestingly, uh, kind of counter to Ben Amin, I had a completely opposite reaction to the very first episode. I felt like I felt compelled. I felt really uh, excited about the very first episode. Uh, in fact, because of the fact that it was centered in Tulsa. And while I had maybe in high school, I had learned about uh, the Tulsa massacre. You know, I, I, there were so many details of it that were never really shared outwardly to more, most people. Like, yeah, we learned about it, but a lot of the kids weren't paying attention. And I know that they didn't carry that with them because that's maybe not in their culture. And then on top of that, you continued or the, or the writer's room and the group continued to display more of, of black history, which is U.S. history. I mean, I mean the fact that up until right. a week ago, I didn't even know that that vast reason was real. And that, I mean, just that aspect and then seeing Regina 
uh, 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 carry this story from the forefront and the way that I mean, I had said this at our screening in Atlanta, but she she reflected the people I know, the women I know in my family, the women that I know that I I speak with every day, like just to be able to be delivered a, a series that that just hard hitting it was powerful and really had no holds barred against it like that meant so much more to me so that's not to overshadow yes the black pain that was in there i also it just hit me completely different than him no i and you know and i i appreciate you know i appreciate both perspectives and 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 many others um um, that fall in between the lines of those uh, just as much. I mean, I think that uh, this is not the kind of thing where I can default to the position of that I could on something like Lost, where I go, guys, guys, it's just a TV show. <laughs> like, you know, I'm glad. Like, I'm glad that it's inciting like such passion and frustration. But you, you don't really get to say, you know. I hope you die because you didn't tell me like what the Dharma initiative was. <laughs> right. Um, like it's, a, it's just a TV show. I, I realized that not only with Watchmen, obviously people have this incredible relationship with Watchmen that has nothing to do with me. Um, I had nothing to do with what makes Watchmen great and why it's persevered over the course of 30 years. And so just the idea that I'm coming in and, um, and and taking it, uh, especially ag- against its creator's wishes, is like is just like the, the feeling that like a seven year old kid must have after their parents get divorced and their dad shows up with his new girlfriend and he's like you know this is Bethany and that kid's just like fuck you Bethany you know <laughs> like you're not my mom like so that that's just that's just the watchman of it all. And then to add in this, this other element and look, you know, I, um, it's hard for me to acknowledge and yet not apologize for, you know, understanding that showing that, you know, the pain that's inflicted on, um, on African Americans through the, um, through American history and obviously not just, uh, exclusively American history, but I started feeling like, um, this is something that I think a lot about and engage a lot, a lot on. And I'm still able to walk through the world as a white man, but constantly everyone keeps asking me, you know, that, like you can tell any story that you want to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to like, you've achieved a certain level of success. Mm-hmm. Can I not use my platform to shine a light on, on the hidden parts of our history that exclusively up until this point, I, I'm only reading about, you know, um, in, in a Ta-Nehisi Coates um, essay or book or on the 1619 podcast, but why, like, white people can shine a light too. Um, uh, and and if you use the, um, the vehicle of a piece of popular culture, I think that if I had said to HBO, I want to make a miniseries about, um, about Black Wall Street, um, people would have been very reluctant. The HBO might have said, Yes, they probably would have said you shouldn't make it at all. Um, <laughs> but people, people, people would be less inclined to tune into that. But I think that when you know people turned on their televisions on Sunday night and they and they watched this thing, a part of them, even though they knew that Watchmen was fictional, that for those who didn't know that Tulsa Twenty One actually happened, 
they knew in their bodies that this was real. Mm. Like, like uh, apparently, um, and again, I'm not on Twitter, but like Google searches for, um, for black wall street, uh, surged on Sunday night and continued trending on Twitter into Monday because, you know, people were like, I didn't know about this. And by the way, like when I found I, the first time I ever heard about it was, was in the case of reparations, um, a oh. Tanasi coach, um, mm-hmm. Atlantic article. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is that? And mm-hmm. I felt shame and embarrassment that I didn't know about it. And when you feel shamed, you, you get into this defensive posture. White people are very good at getting defensive. <laughs> It's sort of like, well, I didn't know about it, but that's because I wasn't taught it. You know? <laughs> well, okay. Well, Google exists. Okay. You know, right. Yeah, right. That's what the internet is for. And now I'm a 42-year-old man. I'm 46 now, but I was 42 when I read that article. And he, guess what? I just got taught. So <laughs> now I get to choose whether I, whether I want to ignore it or whether I want to go all in. And once I went all in, I felt like, if, if I was given, you know, I, I was given this life, whatever your own spiritual beliefs are, I have this pe- people will uh, I have a vehicle by which I can I can talk and communicate to large swaths of people. So I have an opportunity to um, to put put this into a story and not aberrate from it significantly. Tell the story exactly as it happened. I, I have to do that. And I did it. Um, and I'm. You know, and I'm sorry that it caused pain. I knew that it would, but pain is pain is the part of the story. Beyond the racial aspect of the show and everything, you also have to deal with fans of Watchmen and, you know, potentially Mr. Alan Moore himself. No, he doesn't have to deal with Mr. Alan Moore Because <laughs> Mr. Alan Moore himself has recused himself from, yes. from all adaptation. So, yes. so we're good with that, but... But yes. you, you did write yes. a very impassioned. Thank you, Tatiana. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I know the deal. <laughs> yeah. My man really don't care about nothing at this point. He's dying. You know, let's not. You're right. Let's not worry about him. I mean, sorry. You know, all respect due. But you know, this letter that you wrote, it, it really hit me close to home because I'm. You know, you were speaking about your father's passing, and I recently lost my mother, and it does feel exploitative when I'm like when I, even on this show when I talk about her or anything because I don't. Or even like on Twitter or any social media, I don't like doing that much because it just feels like I'm just like using it to get people to be like, oh, you know, it's okay, Ben, you know, and all that. But one question that I do have is how do you move on or continue to create when you're dealing with loss and grief? Because that's been my biggest issue since. Like, mm. it's been tough. Well, first off, you know, my genuine condolences and, um, and, and, I, we're strangers, but I, um, but I, but I mean that because nothing prepares you for the mm-hmm. loss of a parent, um, and nobody wants to be in that club. And I, I, my, my, when my father died, my my parents were divorced, but my mom's folks were still alive, mm-hmm. and her dad died like five years after mine did. Um, my grandpa. Uh, and he was into it well into his nineties and, uh, and she was like wrecked. Um, and I was like, mom, you know, I lost my dad before you lost your dad. You got, you know, 40 bonus years, uh, like, you know, get, get over it. Mm. And, 
Um, and she, and she looked at me and was like, you know, I lost my father mm. and I'll never, you know, I'll never, I, I wasn't that arrogant, um, as, as I'm demonstrating to you, but I, I guess I was incredulous mm-hmm. that like, um, that her grief was equal to mine or the unfairness. And, and, and what it all boils down to is it's just a shock. I mean, what's crazy about the loss of a parent is it's, 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 it's totally inevitable, but when it happens, it's just in, in utter shock and you can't, you, you know, I, I mean this in the most, um, uh, healing way, but once I came to terms with the fact that I would really never get over it, mm-hmm. it's not, it's not something that you ever get over, but it just becomes a part of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, like then it started getting better. But then the other thing is I started putting it into my work. Um, and my dad died right before lost happened. Mm-hmm. So he died in, um, in the, in the summer of 2002 and JJ and I were running the lost pilot in, in January of 2004. So that was, that, that was still, uh, you know, a fairly seismic event in my life. And so the idea that Jack Shepard was flying from Sydney to Los Angeles with mm-hmm. his dad's body in a casket and then the plane crashed and he couldn't bury his dad. Mm. He needed to bury his dad, but he couldn't. You know, the next six years of my life were me sort of like struggling with how to, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, and again, it was an imperfect process, but like the alternative was to not, to, was to just bury it deep and not even talk about it or think about it at all. Um, and, you know, it, it was, um, it was, I think, a very healthy thing to be um, to be dealing with it. But then when, you know, and I thought it was done and I, I moved through, uh, you know, the next decade of my life. And then, you know, I had a son and my son grew up and now he's 13 years old and I'm starting to think about my dad all over again, um, you know, uh, for all sorts of different reasons. And, you know, I want to pick up the phone and talk to him and I want to ask him questions and, I can't do any of those things. And, um, you know, again, it's the most natural thing in the world, death, and it's the most unnatural thing in the world when it happens to you um, uh, or someone that you love. So, uh, again, my profound um, condolences, and I think, like, you just have to keep talking about it. Like, um, ignore the people who are like, you're just playing this up or you're trying to generate sympathy. Guess what? You deserve sympathy. Your mom died, you know? It's it's horrible. Thank you so much for that, Damon. For real, from the bottom of my heart, it means everything to me to hear that because I have been going through it. It's been really difficult to create, but hearing from people who've gone through it themselves really helps. And it's good to know that this grief is just going to be part of my life and that I must accept it and learn to live with it. Real quick, back to Watchmen and some of the themes that are in this show and something that... This isn't, I've seen more than, you know, most. Obviously, we've seen the first six episodes. But immediately, one of my thoughts was, is Robert Redford secretly the worst? Because it seems like he's he's helping Tulsa, but (laughs) ignoring a lot of other, is this this, uh, act that they passed, is this helping, like, uh, descendants of slavery, Native American genocide, prison industrial complex, women being oppressed and everything else they went through for the history of America? All right. Well, we're, we're going deep now here. Here's what I'll <laughs> say um, is that 
first off, obviously the Robert, the president Robert Redford of Watchmen is not the actual Robert. <laughs> he is a, he is, he is a, a, a fictional paradigm. Um, that said, one of the things that we talked about when we built the legislation that we see in effect in this world that, that is colloquially and, and uh, disparagingly referred to as Redfordations, we talked about where did Redford start with what he wanted and where did he end up with all the compromises that you have to make as you go through legislation. And we built a complex history um, including what happened legislatively in Congress and what happened on the Supreme Court, um, the basis of which was an actual case that, um, believe it or not, was um, was represented by Johnny Cochran back in the early 2000s. He represented some of the survivors of, uh, of the massacre um, and sued uh, the state of Oklahoma and the Tulsa um, uh, Tulsa city and the, and the, and the police force. Um, and, uh, we, uh, we 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 created a, an alternate history because in the real world that case ended up getting uh, stalled out. Okay, okay. So what you're saying is that there's more on this whole Redford and all the legalities of what's happening in this world. But let's not get into the spoiler territory just yet. Uh, so going into and and because we don't want to spoil anything, we're just gonna speak on this pilot episode that aired. Uh, what we've seen and what I've noticed is that there's a circular narrative style where everything loops back to the beginning by the time you get to the end. Um, You know, at the end you have, in the beginning of the pilot episode, it started with that silent film of Bass Reeves, he hanging a sheriff and ends with uh, the Honorable Louis Gossett Jr. sitting beside a hanging chief of police. So, while for some of us it feels like 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 if we're really as someone who's seen it like three times now <laughs> i i kind of mm. see that things are there are a lot of clues about what's about to happen next and things are being given away but considering that there's a lot of emotionality behind it people are not going to catch uh maybe these little details so you know when you were building these scenes, when your team was building these scenes, like, you know, was it, was that, obviously it's intentional to have some of that circular reference, but, you know, what are the other clues that you were trying to receive or wanting the audience to receive? Because at the same time, it also feels like you don't want to spoon feed people. Yeah, I, I mean, we're, we're trying to make, we're trying to make the show work on a number of different levels. Um, and it, it, we spent two years just making these nine episodes of, of Watchmen. And one of the things that, that makes Watchmen Watchmen is that it's very dense. Um, that you sort of like that, you know, you feel like you take a bite of this food, but like sometimes I'm in a restaurant and the waiter will come over and, and they'll say, uh, you know, this, 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 this steak is dry aged for, you know, six months. And I'm like, you could literally just kill the cow yesterday and I wouldn't know the difference. Like, but like, but, but the, but the story, but the, the story that they're telling and the time and effort that went into the preparation is it makes me actually appreciate it more. Um, and so I think for us, we put all this work into building the world and, uh, but at the end of the day, the audience doesn't want to see a deep dive into all of those conversations because truth be told, they're very esoteric and a lot of them are kind of boring, but they needed to be had yeah. what the audience yeah. wants, what the audience wants is the emotional experience of the characters. And so they need to know by the end of these nine episodes, you know, what does Angela Abar want? 
and what is she going to do to get it and what's preventing her from getting it that's the hero's journey and um that's the classic story that we tell over and over again um uh since the dawn of time and we'll continue to tell and so it you know i want to i want to make television where people feel have intense feelings um uh where you have an emotional experience and i don't want to be cheap and easy about it it's easy to make somebody angry it's it's less it's less easy to make somebody sad um and so you 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 scratch it at it until you find something authentic there and then you start to dig um and ultimately we can get um as clever with the narrative as 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 we want mm-hmm. but if if the show doesn't make you care it, it, you're going to have an, you're going to come away from it feeling pretty empty and then it's mission not accomplished mm. Mm. so how do you feel about like there was a certain reactions how do you feel that there's the interpretations of angela and what she represents are going to be all over the map. Like, we were talking about this earlier, like how Rorschach's in this story has been adopted by white supremacists. But at the same time, Angela is a police officer. And, you know, that has a particular relationship to African-American communities. So did you... Well, yeah. I mean... I, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, did you... I no, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I just say in the real world, there are um, there are African-American women police officers, correct? That's actually one of my cousins is NYPD. And I have have both a male and female cousin at NYPD. Yeah. And in in the writer's room, in the writer's room, we had a writer who was an African-American female police officer and her mother was an African-American female officer. And I think if you said to them, how could you become a police officer? If you if the police are routinely bringing harm to people of color, I, every single one, uh, every single person of color is going to have a different answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I, I I'm not here to answer that question. I am here to say there are black women who are cops and they are working in a job uh, that um, where where some of their uh, colleagues uh, are racist. Um, uh, all cops are not racist. Um, uh, all racists are not cops. It, it's it's an incredibly uh, a complicated um, uh, construction, and I can't hide behind the fact that this is a TV show. Uh, it's obviously um, it it's it's reflective of the world that we live in. But I I do feel like um, a very legitimate criticism of the pilot um, came from Eric Deggins. He asked if we we had a a, a critics association screening of the pilot mm-hmm. and then they have this big press conference where regina and nikki um and i nicole castle cassell who's the director of the um of the pilot answer questions and the very first question that mr deggins asked was very similar to the one that you're asking ben which is um uh you know like how are we supposed to believe in any world even a fictional world where the police are taking on white supremacists and um and and I, I, and, and I said, I understand the question, and I hope that by the end of the nine episodes, we can revisit this question. So I'll, I'll say the same thing to you, which is I don't, I don't think that the police force is a monolith by any stretch of the imagination. I think that this is a story that starts with a little boy in 1921 looking at an officer of the law that looks like him, and he wants to be that. Yeah. He wants to administer the law. 
And a hundred years later, something horrible, he's actually had to live in the real world and he sees what the law, what the administration of the law really is. And hopefully we've done a job of accurately presenting that. Um, but I, I, I can't get it perfect. Um, I don't know if such a thing exists. There's no, there's no version of this TV show where every single person who watches it goes nailed it. Um, and so I have to be comfortable with it being imperfect. And I think we can all agree that it is. <laughs> mm. But it's also, it's, it's doing things that are very rarely seen in media. And I think that's why you're getting a lot of the reaction. And that that's why, you know, we wanted, we're so happy that you're here and able to talk to us about this. Because uh, one thing a friend of the show asked about was a friend, uh, Janicia, she runs a podcast, uh, Tea with Queen and Jay. And she wondered, and even I was kind of, like I said, the first eight minutes of the show just took me kind of by surprise even. And so she was asking, did the writers, did you ever consider having a type of content warning at the beginning of the episode? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Um, the honest answer is no. And, um, and maybe we should have. I think that the reason that the answer is no is that, to my knowledge, um, I, maybe HBO did it on Euphoria, or they've done it in instances of um, uh, in mm -hmm. surrounding like sexual assault. Right. But I, I, I guess I'd never. I've, I, I've seen those content war warnings on um, on basic cable shows like on FX, for example. But you very, I very rarely if ever saw them on HBO and I, I probably should have taken it upon myself to, to ask that question. Um, but, uh, like, but, but didn't. So that's, that's the, that's the, the honest answer. And then I think that probably on the heels of wonder of asking whether or not there should have been a warning, then the question just becomes like, what, 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 what is the specific wording of that warning? Um, as you guys know, in the second episode, we troll the idea of content warning. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, because in my opinion, uh, in some cases, but not in all cases, content warnings are actually used to excite people versus to genuinely warn people. So it's like, it's like the voice that does the content warning is like the trailer guy voice. <laughs> it is. Like, warning. Like, you know, it's this so episode contains nudity. I'm like, and yes. Violence. You're like, yeah, you're sort of like, ooh la la. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, but I, it, I think it's a legitimate question and probably something that we should have considered. Mm. Okay. All right. Well, I think they will appreciate that. And another thing that, again, just com the comments that we've seen has been surrounding around the fact that the show kind of gives a glimpse of you know, what would potentially happen if, you know, we black people particularly didn't have to constantly be fighting against being exterminated. Um, and it reminds us of a, a, a run that's out right now for X-Men. Um, I'm not sure if you've read a Hickman's X-Men's run that's out right now. You know, I'm. Uh, this is such a this is such a cop out, but I'm waiting for the trades. You're yeah. like, the <laughs> first who's, no, I mean, um, uh, I've been hearing about his X Men run now for a month, and so mm. I just I want to I want to gobble it up all in, in one in one shot, but I have not yet read it. Mm. Well, that's something, and it's 
It, I mean, it, I love it. You know, I'm a huge fan of X-Men and everything for years, but I think this is one of the most revolutionary runs. But it's also something that I feel like Watchmen and X-Men are both doing that are... Like, when I tweeted it out myself the other day, and it really bugged me out to say that. Like, to say that African Americans are constantly fighting against extermination. Because you don't use that terminology. Yeah, but when you think of it like that way, it's that's the reality of it. And it's like, if we didn't have to fight against extermination, what could we achieve? And so, that's one thing that I'm happy that Watchmen is actually, you know, asking that question. Uh, you know, it's asking that question and it's not answering that question, which mm-hmm. unfortunately is much more reflective of the real world mm-hmm. um, uh, that we're living in. And I think that um, I think that we can all agree that Black Panther was a quantum leap forward in the genre telling uh, stories uh, about people of color um, and it's established canon, right? But but like one one does like have to ask the question if Wakanda actually existed in the real world, what would happen to it? And the answer is white people would burn it to the ground, you know, <laughs> like uh, because the idea that uh, that a place of black exceptionalism could exist in the world threatens the status quo. And so, you know, that's the parenthetical. And, and obviously Ryan knew that. I think it is reflected in the storytelling. But at the same time, you got to make a Marvel movie. Mm-hmm. And so, um, like, but I think that this story is going to start getting told more often because that it, it's very, you know, it, it's very much reflective of the times in which we live. Mm. All right. Now, you've also said that Watchmen, the show, is a complete story, you know, first season, one and done, possibly. But. You know, we've seen the reaction. Like you said, numbers for the... 1.5 million on the premiere. Oh, I didn't even know, but that's Bid Dog. So has, you know, HBO backed that money truck up to the front door yet for that second season? (laughs) (laughs) No. <laughs> they, I, people always talk about that money truck. I, I, I've never. I'm waiting on it. Damon, it's yeah. I'm waiting I've, on it. I just want to know. I've I never glimpsed it, and I, you know, I, I, I leave, I lead a blessed life, um, and there, and, and I have many peers in this business who, you know, um, who you read in the in the trades or, you know, do a doing a hundred million dollar deal with Netflix, and I was like, God, what, you know, like. I'm never going to see that amount of money in my life. Right. But what do you do with like, that amount of money? Me, you know, yeah, it, it is, you know, like at a certain point, um, you know, you got to, you got to do it for the love of the game. And, um, and I, and I mean this just to be completely and totally genuine with you guys, my wildest dream, my wildest dream, if you would ask me, you know, when I was 15 or 16 years old, like, what do you want to accomplish in, before you die? Like, whatever I would have told you would not have even come close to what happened with Lost. Mm. So, you know, I, created, I co-created Lost when I was 30 years old, and I was 36 when it ended. And my feeling at that point in my life, and then not from a, an arrogant standpoint, was just basically like, I did it. Like, mm-hmm. there's, like, and so now I can basically spend the rest of my life chasing it, um, trying to feel that feeling again. Or, or I can, you know, 
or I can chase money, right? I can just get more wealthy and wealthy and wealthy and wealthy, and I can pass on that generational wealth to my kids and grandkids, et cetera, et cetera. Or, you know, or I can, you know, I can get, I can, I can climb up the ladder and walk out to the end of the diving board and not, and not know what's in the pool beneath, you know, and just keep jumping. Um, and that third thing has been the path that I've chosen. It's scary. And, you know, very oftentimes I feel like I'm, you know, I'm in over my head or I've made a horrible mistake or I shouldn't have done it in the first place. I've definitely felt all of those things. And even at, even now that Watchmen has premiered, I still feel a, a sense of pervasive, a very real anxiety about like whether or not I should have done it um, or, or whether or not it was done well. Mm. Um, but I will say like that, that feeling of self doubt um, and trying to conquer it is not, is my new life's ambition. I don't know if I'll ever succeed, but like, I do think it's generating interesting, more interesting work than if I was driven by those other things. Well, you know, if that proverbial, you know, imaginary money truck does get backed <laughs> up for season two, yes. um, you know, some people in this very room might like to submit a resume or, you know, something of that matter. Oh, okay. You know, just, What we're saying is, consider DJ Van Yes, I will say... You have already you have already checked the most important boxes, which are that you're completely and totally willing to challenge me and to tell me when I'm fucking up. Uh, nope. So, like those are the two those are the two primary primary criteria to be in my room, uh, our room. So, uh, so if this is our job interview, you're looking good. Hey, well, you know, if you want to ask Brian and Michael how much I talked <laughs> that, you know, yeah, I'm sure I have no problem telling right. you. <laughs> Okay. All right. All right. Well, you have survived the interview segment, and we have survived the interview segment. Wow. If only you guys knew. So many squid falls. But, you know, <laughs> it's now time for our BRAP segment, which is our rapid fire questions. And we have Damon oh, Lindelof right. in, the, <laughs> in the seat. I had a rapid fire. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, are you ready? Bring it. All right. First up The Falcon or War Machine? The Falcon. The Wire or Breaking Bad? The Wire. Luke Cage or Black Panther? Black Panther. Lex Luthor or Doctor Doom? Ah, <laughs> Lex Luthor. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. All right, Jack Sawyer, Kate, Mary, fuck, kill. Oh my God! Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I marry Kate. I fuck Sawyer and I kill Jack. I mean, I, I can't, I can't disagree with those choices. <laughs> yeah. When that man jumped out of the helicopter, I that mean, was a moment for me. I was like, <laughs> I, yeah, I, you gotta get me some of that. Yeah, I, I, I love Jack, but he's gotta go. Got to. Yeah. Got to first off. Yeah. I, we, we tried to we tried to kill him in the pilot. I know. <laughs> it, took us, it took us 121 episodes, but we we finally got around to it. <laughs> Man's tough. I already did kill him. Yeah. yeah. Hilarious. Um, Mike Myers, Freddie, or Jason? Freddie. Freddie. Freddie's creative. Yes. 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 Very much so. That that was the first one for me. Was Dream Warriors three? That's what. 
got me in, probably probably into oh horror. Yeah, right. Probably into the horror. Best. That one. The best. The best. Oh my god. Okay. Uh, let's see. Judge Dredd or Judge Judy? Oh, Judge Dredd. Although <laughs> you think he's Judge scarier? It's arguably tougher. Yes, yeah. arguably. Okay. Um, what's your favorite Wesley Snipes movie? Oh my God! Um, uh, it's got to be Blade. I mean, come on, right? Mm-hmm. That's valid. It's valid. Always, always. Uh, you know, it's always in the top three at the very least. All uh, right, the one, and this—I'm really interested here. You have to say this one, we already know. No, no, it depends, really. This, no, it doesn't. Okay, we're gonna ask it anyway, though. <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek? It's it's Star Wars. <laughs> I mean, if you have to cho- if you have to choose a lane, I love them both. But mm-hmm. like, I'm not—you know—when you ask a parent which kid do you like the best, <laughs> you guys know this. So yeah, if, so. So if you ask a parent which kid they like the best, they will never answer the question. They'll like, oh, I love them all the same or I love them in different ways. But they did a psychological study and they would ask the kids. So let's say your parents have three kids and they'd say they ask all three kids, which one does mom like the best? All three kids would agree on who it was mm. and which one does dad like the best. And so it basically proves the point that parents actually, the data suggests that parents do have favorites. They just won't cop to it. So, so I'm telling you, it's Star Wars, but I, but I love Star Trek too. I mean, you worked on them. So. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, maybe, maybe that's why I love Star Wars more. Mm. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> I, never Star, I never worked on Star Wars. Okay, okay. Once you work on it, once you once you work on it, it's work. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, in any medium, such as books, TV's film, what character's death hurt you the most? Oh my God! Uh, I uh, I think when when Stringer died on the wire, that was uh, that that was I was when that happened. I was like, I don't know if I want to watch. I mean, I love the show, but I don't know if I can watch this anymore if he's not going to be on it. Um. So that was that was that was a devastating loss. That one got me, and also um, when Omar, I was watching it on DVD, oh, yeah. and I think I'd already seen it. Oh my god! But the second time I watched it on DVD, when he gets shot, I I rewound it, like hoping that something would change. <laughs> like, right, right, no, right. It's not an Infinity I Stone. You can't you can't reverse it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay uh, let's... He's incredible. Yeah. Oof. Okay. Who? Every death on the wire. Like Wallace. I mean, you know. Oh my God. Every death on that. Show. Um. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I can't. I can't even talk about Wallace. That. That. That crushes me. Um. Who was your first geek crush? Oh. Um. Most certainly. Um. Uh. Linda Carter on Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. All right. Official. And finally, definitely. Finally, if you could have any one superpower, what would it be? Uh, uh flight. Oh, you just like that's just the one that's you chose, it, right? You know? <laughs> just one. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it'd just be cool. Like, I don't like driving, and um, 
that that's all there is to it. I live in Los Angeles. You know, I I, I need to I need to fly. Mm-hmm. Even if I have no other power. A man of function. We got you. There it is. I'm sure there's better powers out there. That's like there's some there's some psychological test there too, right? Where people will either choose flight or invisibility, and it mm. says something about who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what flight means, but that's that's my take. Probably something to do with freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you've survived the rap segment. We have all survived this interview. Thank you so much once again for joining us here on the spaceship. And, you know, I think the Internet's already know, but please let them know where they can find you at these days. Uh, I, I, I'm not uh, brave enough for Twitter, but I am uh, I'm on Instagram at Damon Lindelof, uh, uh, D-A-M-O-N-L-I-N-D-E-L-O-F. That's where I am. And welcome back, and thank you. Oh, my God. Like, I can't give that man enough thanks, folks, because if we ever released a BTS video <laughs> of this episode. That's fire. <laughs> you know, the world yeah. is on fire. Only fans video of this episode. Jeez. It was a hot and you know, I wouldn't say mess because it's never a mess on the spaceship. No, it's but always behind the scenes squares. Like I said, the things that we do behind the scenes and the fact that it comes out roses. Yes. But sometimes stuff don't go right and then Mm-mm. it just goes to show you sometimes no matter how much planning and, and, and dedication and all that you have sometimes shit just don't work yes but you got to keep pushing forward yes and you know shout outs to our super engineer brother chris over here staying with us through the whole thing you know got this joint edited so y'all don't hear all that (laughs) and our special super guest who just left the spaceship mr motherfucking damon lindelof yeah thank you for blessing us with that gym of the interview as y'all heard, my man drops all kind of things and is not afraid to be challenged and has already told us that he wants to come back because we're going to need him back because no back. spoilers. But if you thought episode one of Watchmen was something to talk about, <laughs> episode six <laughs> is don't have y'all talking, boy. The internets are going to be aflame. And my new AKA is dropping the... About halfway through that episode, just get ready. Follow my Twitter. About halfway through that episode, I'm breaking it down. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say right there.